Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 596 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 2nd of January 2022 as I record this from Auckland in New Zealand. So happy new year. (laughs) I'm very excited now, I do love January. So in today's show I'm talking to Dr Anne Bartolucci about better sleep which is something I'm focusing on for 2022. And I know many of you want to improve yours too. It has all kinds of health and creativity and just life benefits. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, it's the time of the year when we talk about trends and written word media have a good article on this. And I'll just pick a couple of things from it and you can go and check it out. It's called the top eight publishing industry trends for 2022. So the first thing on their list is that direct sales will continue to grow, especially for authors who can reach their audience easily somehow, generally through email or things like this podcast for sure. Sell my ebooks and audiobooks direct and many of you do buy from me direct, which is fantastic. With the growth of more technological options, more authors will bypass the traditional channels for at least some of their work and sell books and make money without giving more cash to the incumbent booksellers. Now, to be clear, generally, this is on top of selling books everywhere else. So, for example, for me, wide really does mean wide. And if I sell direct, it doesn't stop me from selling on uh, Amazon and Kobo and Apple and print books and Findaway and all these things. So selling direct also includes options like Substack, which many people are moving their writing onto, and other paid email list formats, as well as Patreon and private subscriptions, and things like Kickstarter, where many authors now upsell their backlist books along with their latest project, which I've seen recently from um, people like uh, Brian Cohen has a book on ads, which then I know he he upselled more books on, and Monica Leonel as well, uh, on he'll be coming on the show to talk about Kickstarter data also upselling backlist books that way. And of course, those sales don't aren't reflected in any kind of industry reports. Plus sites like Shopify, plugins like WooCommerce and sites like Payhip, which I use myself along with BookFunnel, which allows easy delivery. So you can see my tutorial on Payhip and BookFunnel at thecreativepen.com forward slash sell direct tutorial. But this is definitely going to continue. There are more and more and more ways to sell books and also to buy books. So as a reader, I hope you'll consider a reader and a listener with audio, consider buying direct from people and also consider doing it yourself. In terms of book marketing, the article notes that BookTok or TikTok, the hashtag BookTok on TikTok, (laughs) is driving more book sales across diverse genres. So if you like video and your books are the type of books that they like reviewing on BookTok, it could be an option. 
But uh, as ever, I wouldn't look at it as a magic bullet. With all social media, it's a case of making a decision for the longer term. Do you enjoy the platform as a user? Does it fit into your life and your marketing plan? Can you commit to at least six months to a year as it always takes time to build up an audience? And is it worth your time? So personally, I am not into video. I made a decision a few years back to focus on audio. That's my uh, my primary thing over my books. It's books and audio. And I'm reducing my time even more on social media this year. I have yet again <laughs> taken Twitter off my phone. It's been three days uh, for my addiction and uh, we shall see. I, I'm. It, it may well go back on my phone, but I'm really just trying to break the doom scrolling habit uh, in the middle of the night, for example, which is, you know, back to the sleep thing, which we'll be talking about later. Uh, anyway, <laughs> in terms of book talk, if you're interested in book talk or in fact any kind of marketing and advertising um, around paid opportunities, then Mark Dawson's Ads for Authors course is opening again soon and includes lessons on marketing on BookTok, as well as the established methods of Amazon ads, Facebook ads, BookBub ads and more. I've been through Mark's course several times, or not all the not or not all the modules, uh, but I've been through those modules, the Facebook and the Amazon ones, several times over the last few years because you get access to all the the new modules, and I'm going back over some of them again <laughs> because we all have to keep learning these things. Uh, Mark's course is opening soon, and you can use my link if you want to support the show at thecreativepen.com forward slash ads. That's my affiliate link. And you can join the waitlist if the course isn't open yet, and you'll be notified of the next time it opens. So that's thecreativepen.com forward slash ads. And I mention it here because of the book talk opportunity. That basically uh, is a new opportunity that will definitely suit some people. Back to the article, Craig Martell from 20 books to 50k is quoted. He mentions that physical book prices will go up because of paper costs and distribution issues, which we've all noticed, and just inflation in general, since everything is on the up right now. Interestingly, Craig also mentions ebooks going up too. Is the time of the 99 cent book over? I see many KU authors in particular have their ebooks at a higher price, which is, which is great to see. Well, basically, most KU focused authors, I guess, uh, get their money from page reads, but why not have it at a higher price? And that might be pulling up indie prices, which is a positive uh, trend. I have this on my list too. I'm going to review all my ebook prices and consider putting them up and also my print prices. Uh, it's becoming necessary both because of inflation, but also because ads get more expensive, which eats into profits. And certainly if you are printing with Ingram Spark and in, indeed even KDP Print, it's a good time to go in and have a look at just your uh, pricing page. And it's going to tell you <laughs> if you need to review your prices. As in, you'll be able to see that your profit has gone down as paper has become more expensive. So I'm also quoted in the article and you won't be surprised at my comment. 2021 saw the emergence of new technologies for the creator economy and 2022 will see authors put these into practice. NFTs for books will gain traction as well as AI narration for audiobooks and the use of AI natural language generation tools for ad copy, content marketing and enhancing the writing process. So <laughs> I know some of you are like, ooh, I don't think so. But NFTs are part of the sell direct trend. 
they essentially bypass the traditional bookstores and offer sale of unique and unusual assets. And they allow resale on digital products through smart contracts, which we've never had before in the book industry. And I think once the penny drops on the utility of NFTs, people and when people realise it's not just about the JPEG, (laughs) we will see more publishers embrace them for their authors. And have a listen to episode 586 with Michael Baskar for a discussion on what that might mean for digital rights. And uh, I definitely think more indies will do it this year. But also in terms of NFTs for books, um, some big, I think some big name authors will release NFTs in 2022, as we saw big name musicians embrace them in 2021. Check out bookcoin.com, which is aiming at traditionally published authors initially, those with huge audiences, and also Creatokia, which has started with their drops already. I'm still thinking about what I want to do with my own NFTs. And I'm not in a rush. Like, I don't think, yes, there is uh, what many would consider a bubble right now in NFT prices, especially around art. But I'm not thinking about this as a bubble. I'm thinking about this as for the long term. NFTs will be part of the creator economy for the next 20 years. (laughs) And I'm not thinking about it as some hyped up get rich quick scheme, but more as the underpinning technology and the architecture for Web3. So there's no need to rush. It's going to be a lot. There will be lots of options probably within the next year or certainly within the next couple of years. You're going to see more and more opportunities. And I would hope that we'll see some of the incumbents also offering them. So just coming back on AI for writing, it's also possible that GPT-4 will be released in 2022. And this is the language model that essentially can generate words, it can generate code, it can translate, it can do a lot of different things. But GPT-4 has been reported as being 500 times the size of GPT-3's language model. And many are speculating that this will lead to qualitative leaps in natural language processing and generation. Given how many new apps and companies are already being built on top of GPT-3, I expect it to grow even more with the next release. And of course, even if you don't like this, <laughs> language models are not going away, which is why I advocate ethical usage and statements of AI usage in my books. And more and more writers, I think, will use these tools and won't talk about it. But as ever, I'm going to keep talking about it. So I have a whole section about this in my AI assisted author course at the creativepen.com forward slash learn. And if you are worried about AI for writers, and it's again, it's not just for writers. <laughs> Uh, Once again, I will quote Kevin Kelly from his excellent book, The Inevitable. This is not a race against the machines. If we race against them, we lose. This is a race with the machines. You'll be paid in the future based on how well you work with robots. It is inevitable. And of course, the word robots there means AI tools and anything all of these things. So more tech is coming, whether that's AI or automation or the metaverse or blockchain or digital currencies. And the author community, to be honest, is the least of it. (laughs) We are not, um, I guess, not the industry that's the top of the chain in all these technological things. It's happening far faster in other domains. So as we move into 2022, we all need to figure out how we can work well with robots and create more interesting things and make more money and also double down on being human, which I've talked about before. And this is a challenge. And of course, I will keep sharing the journey. 
So back on the trends this year, we will also see the ramifications of Spotify's acquisition of Findaway, which may mean that subscription models will become the dominant method of audiobook consumption, which may in turn put pressure on prices, which may in turn drive AI voices for mass market narration, leaving human narrators to continue producing incredible artistic and individual productions. Again, I don't believe AI narration replaces human narrators. It just creates a bigger market for audio and adds another stream of income through new licensing models and more products. If you're interested both in the AI voice tech, but also in how publishing might shake out in 2022, check out Mark Leslie Lefebvre's Stark Reflections podcast, episode 227, as he uses his AI voice for some of the introduction to the show as he was traveling. Such a great idea and something I may do myself from time to time. Although, of course, I will let you know when it's AI me, as Mark does in his intro. His voice is pretty good now, actually. I think it's better than when we recorded our our discussion a while back. But there are some obvious mispronunciations, like findaway, not findaway. But this is also uh, instructive because it's part of writing for AI narration if you're planning on doing this. You can go in and edit the words. So I might go back in and overtype and spell it F-Y-N-E dash D-A W-A-Y, whatever. But as in, in, if it's pronouncing it find, not find, then spell it in a way that it will pronounce it find. So F-Y-N-E. And so you do that and then you like press uh, read again and it will change the way that AI pronounces it. So editing for AI audio is certainly another interesting ramification (laughs) as we move forward. Mark also talks about some of the great things happening at Drafter Digital and how print is still incredibly important for indie authors. And print continues to be a trend. No matter how excited we get about tech, most readers love their print books. And sales of ebooks and audiobooks drive more sales of print. I certainly find this. If I love an audiobook, I often buy it in print to keep it on my shelf. Mark Coker on the Smashwords blog has a uh, predictions for 2022 and also emphasizes the importance of print for indies as the shift to purchasing online has accelerated with the pandemic. Again, it's kind of hilarious that we're circling back to print again, but it should also be part of the baseline for most indie books. So if that's uh, if you haven't done print for your books, then definitely look at print on demand this year. Mark Coker also mentions the continued growth of subscription and AI narrated audiobooks as a trend and also a resurgence in writers conferences in person. Fingers crossed that happens. Mark also mentions a long shot possibility that Spotify enters the ebook market by buying Scribd, <laughs> which would make a compelling ebook audiobook subscription possibility to rival Amazon. But I don't think that will happen as I've listened to quite a lot of um, interviews with Daniel Ek, Spotify's CEO, and they are focused on being the world's number one platform for audio, and that is a big enough goal. So with the rumours that Apple might also release their AR and or VR headset in 2022, we should definitely see some interesting things happening. 
In my personal update, well, I love, love, love the new year. So bring it on 2022. (laughs) I am health wise, I'm doing dry January and have also been reducing my caffeine intake. And I have already had a few better nights of sleep. So hopefully both of these things will get me back on track with my health and heading home will also help. And fingers crossed, I'll be back in Bath by this time next week. And my next show will be recorded back in the audio booth. Yay! In terms of writing, my first writing project is re-editing Stone of Fire to bring it into line with my later arcane thrillers. Now, many people, um, Stone of Fire was my first novel. I uh, wrote it in 2009 and published it in 2011 after lots of editing, etc. I re-edited it in 2012 and uh, you know did some edits over the years but I now want to re-edit it it's still book one in my series now people say you shouldn't write some people say you shouldn't rewrite older books and I've said this myself before but Arcane is my main series in my Arcane action adventure thrillers they're my main series Morgan Sierra is my alter ego Some people are like, oh, yeah, well, you should just move on to another series. But I just keep coming back to Morgan because she's me. (laughs) Well, not me because she's much better at Krav Maga and all of this. But, you know, I I put a lot of my thoughts in her head. It's also the series that makes me money if I advertise it because there are now 12 books and more to come. So if I can increase the sell through, it should make me more money, more money. So book one will always be book one and it needs a reboot. So in terms of the process, if this is something you're interested in, I'm not rewriting the plot or, you know, the characters or anything. I'm mainly editing for my pace. My pacing has got a lot faster and also passive voice, which is a lot worse in that in my early books. Um, uh, So what I'm doing, actually, because pro writing aid is amazing. (laughs) I am. uh, So I exported the existing vellum file to uh, RTF format. And then I imported that into Scrivener and then I opened that file in ProWritingAid. So you can edit in Scrivener through ProWritingAid and by editing directly in ProWritingAid, it underlines all the passive voice, underlines issues like dialogue. So I can see that as an early writer, I use things like she said or Morgan said, whereas now I write a lot more action. So uh, to make it obvious who is speaking using action rather than words like she said or she saw or she felt uh, lots of things that I can just remove so I think I'll probably cut quite a lot of words out and make it much pacier so I'm it's quite it's going to be quite a fast edit uh, but I think it will help move people through the book faster so once that's done once the edit is done I'll print that out and reread it um, on paper and then I will um, obviously do those updates then I'll have a human proofreader um, read it and then I will republish the ebook it will be another edition I think it will be the third major edition and I'll add 2022 onto the copyright page along with the other years then I'll get that reformatted for print and then I'm going to weigh up whether it's worth doing for audio because the story is the same and it's quite expensive to, because it's quite a long book um, so yeah we will see. So that's what I'm doing with the first book of the year. And uh, I'm quite excited. It's really quite cool. I'm also I've opened a sort of file, which is ideas for other things. I want to write some more short stories using the characters. Um, I've been reading quite a lot of Jonathan Mabry. I love Jonathan Mabry, spelled M-A-B-E-R-R-Y. I love his Joe Ledger series and some of his other books. And I've been reading a lot of his short stories that tie into his major books. 
And I didn't, I always thought that short stories needed to be kind of completely separate, but now I can see how I could use some short stories to tie into um, the longer arcane works. So I'm noting down ideas as I'm re-editing it of things I can do. For example, Morgan's origin story, uh, I could do um, a, a particular incident. Uh, in that. So yeah, lots of ideas there. So hopefully that helps you if you're thinking about it. And again, maybe it's not worth doing editing book one if you've only got three books, for example, but with 12, it just makes a difference to, for me, I think, well, I hope it will, (laughs) to re-edit it. Um, And then as I go into putting more more money through ads to see if people move through the series quicker. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments on both the Roundup for 2021 and my goals episode on the 1st of January 2022. I won't be sharing any today, uh, but we'll be back to the usual format next week. So please do tweet me at The Creative Pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening or you can email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or on the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, which is very apt given I'm spending so much time in it right now. So what is Pro Writing Aid and why should you even consider writing software? Well, before you send your book to your human editor, it should be the best that you can make it. There's no point paying a human editor for something that this wonderful tool can do. Pro Writing Aid can help you make your book the best it can be with its suggestions for improvement, including passive voice, which is always an issue for writers and sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. I wish, wish, wish I had had pro writing aid for that first novel years ago. It also has help on things like sentence length variation and complexity, adverb usage, repeated words, which is a big one, dialogue tags, commas, which are my own personal nemesis, and typos for the specific type of uh, English you use, as well as issues with wording like helpful tips, You just started three sentences in a row with the same word. Did you know that? Maybe you'd like to change one. (laughs) It has some really useful reports to help you improve your writing. So I use ProWritingAid several times in my normal process before sending it to my editor and then um, to fix the major issues. After I get my edits back and I fiddled with it again, I run it again through ProWritingAid. And in fact, with my recent short stories, I didn't even use a human proofreader. I just used ProWritingAid and it worked a treat. So I love how I can write in Scrivener and open the project within ProWritingAid. It will check the content and update it as I write and save it back into the Scrivener project. They also have integration with MS Word, Chrome, Google Docs, and also a plagiarism checker, which I recommend using if you're doing any kind of uh, natural language generation, for example, writing with PseudoWrite or uh, any of those tools. I used to use Grammarly, but I switched to ProWritingAid as it is much better for longer form documents, for creative writing, and the integrations fit better with my workflow. You don't have to be techie to use it. Even my tech-phobic mum loves it. She's uh, in her mid-70s, and it helps her control her over-enthusiastic usage of exclamation marks. So whenever I write, I use ProWritingAid. It helps me produce my best work, and I learn something every time. Check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link prowritingaids.com forward slash Joanna. That's J-O-A-N-N-A prowritingaids.com forward slash Joanna. 
So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is as ever sponsored by my patrons. And thank you so much to all the new patrons in the last few weeks. And as a bit of a batch because I haven't been reading them. Tony Walsh, Dale Rogers, Camille, Sierra Cartwright, Justin, Tim Kinney, Shona Parker and Randall Hendy. Thank you to all of you and thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show on Patreon for months and years. Some of you since 2014, which is amazing. You are brilliant and I appreciate the Patreon support financially, but also emotionally, as you probably heard in my roundup for 2021. You can support the show with just a few dollars or whatever your currency is. You can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen and you get access to the extra monthly Q&A audio. Right, let's get into the interview. Dr. Anna Bartolucci is a licensed psychologist and a certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist. She's the author of two nonfiction books, including Better Sleep for the Overachiever. And she's also a best-selling steampunk and urban fantasy author under Cecilia Dominic. So welcome, Anna. Thank you so much, Joanne. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, yes. Well, this is super important. But before we get into the topic, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing, as well as how you split your creative self between these two different careers. Yes, that last part of the question is definitely the challenging bit. So I apparently have been writing since I was very little. My mom claims that I wrote my first story when I was two. (laughs) And she, I'm sure she has it somewhere. And apparently what it lacked in plot and character development, it more than made up for an enthusiasm. It was about a bunny. And so I've written all through school. And of course, creative writing was always a pleasure thing, really more than a career path for me. I, you know, I got the message that many people get that, well, that's a fun hobby, but you can't really do it for a career. So I let it lapse a bit when I was in high school and definitely in college. And then when I got to graduate school, I had a little bit of a setback that I do talk about in the book. And I went to the bookstore to console myself as we writer types do. And I stumbled across an issue of Writer's Digest magazine. And it just blew my mind because I was like, holy crap, people get paid for this. (laughs) So I picked up my creative writing again and did it through grad school as sort of a self-sanity thing. And then started working on my novel, which, you know, of course, first novel took me like four or five years and then pitched that for a long time, wrote some other novels. Finally, that one sold to Samhain Publishing in 2013. So I started out traditionally published and they were a mid-sized genre author out of Cincinnati, Ohio, mostly doing romance and associated genres. And I had seven books with them when they closed in 2017 when I got my rights back. And I have been indie pubbed since then until just recently when I signed a three book contract with Falstaff Publishing for a time travel action adventure series. And those should start coming out next year. So I guess at this point I can call myself hybrid. And mm. as, as for splitting my creative self between the two, I used to try to keep the two very, very separate, hence the pen name. And I started my online writing with a wine blog. And of course, I live in a part of the United States where some people have some very interesting attitudes towards alcohol. Like in my state, Georgia, we weren't even allowed to buy alcohol on Sundays until about 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah. 
now we still have to wait until like 11 30 on Sundays <laughs> after church so, whereas of course I guess if you have communion you do get your wine <laughs> yes especially for those of us in the churches where they do have real wine for communion although not since the pandemic oh, interesting yeah. yes so you know make your brunch plans accordingly so do you work as a psychologist now so you do manage these two very differently I do so I have my own private practice Atlanta Insomnia and Behavioral Health Services. I started that in 2008. And at this point, we've grown. So it's me and a full-time other psychologist and a part-time psychologist. Had to bring somebody else on because we got very busy over the past year, as you can Mm. imagine. And so it's, yes, full load of patients, all the administrative stuff. And I realized with telehealth that I can't do as many telehealth sessions in a day as I do in-person sessions, just because it is more of a physical strain on my eyes. It's more of a brain strain because I'm having to extrapolate a lot more information from a lot fewer cues. And so I cut back on those hours and have tried to expand my writing hours, which has gone with mixed success. Wow. It's so interesting that you said there the telehealth, like presumably through Zoom or whatever, Skype, makes you more tired. Because I feel like before the pandemic, people assumed that it was easy to do this stuff. But now there seems to be this understanding that it is very tiring. And like speaking on through Zoom is just or even more tiring than (laughs) doing it in person, right? Do you think that there is now the acceptance of, of it? I hope so. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with insurance reimbursements as we move forward because they're trying to pay us less because they're like, oh, well, you don't have as much overhead if you're just sitting at home with your computer. And I don't know that they're really thinking about the balance of, but yeah, it's a lot harder physically. So they are not necessarily noticing it, but other people, especially those whose whole lives have moved on to these video platforms, definitely notice. And we have this term Zoom fatigue to describe all of it. Even though we don't use Zoom, we use a HIPAA compliant platform that comes through our electronic health record system, but it definitely is a valid thing. And I know I've heard you talk on your podcast about how you what you were doing online events, but you have cut back because, yeah, I've done the same thing because it's no fun to sit and talk to your computer for five hours giving a workshop. No, exactly. And I mean, you and I recording this without the video on, because even, you know, some people say, oh, no, I want the video on so I can watch your body language. And I'm like, but I don't want to have to look at your body language because it's tiring. (laughs) (laughs) So even though we're in front of the computer now, I feel like having the video off and the lights turned down can really help. But of course, you can't do that in a uh, psychological perspective. (laughs) It's like, excuse me, why turn the lights down? (laughs) Not really. And then patients get really disappointed if they can't see my cat when I'm working oh, from home. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's get into the topic, which is we're talking about sleep. So yes. why is sleep? I mean, it's a crazy question, but <laughs> given how we have so little of it, but why is sleep so important for mental health and happiness as well as creativity for writers? Well, if you think about it, we know a lot of why we need sleep because of what happens when we don't sleep. So if you're not sleeping or if you've had a rough night, we notice that we're not as sharp the next day. We notice that it's a lot harder to communicate. Maybe it's harder to focus on things and we're grumpy and it's really hard 
to be creative when you're in this foggy, grumpy, irritable state, especially if that's your normal state because you haven't been getting good sleep for a long time. And it was interesting. I was at a convention this past weekend here in Atlanta, and I heard at least two people talk about how when they come to a thorny problem in their writing, in their manuscript, they will think about it before they go to bed. And then often when they wake up, they'll have a solution. And so we have all these interesting mental processes that happen when we sleep. Like our brain doesn't just shut off. No, it is working through the night and it's able to work in different ways while we sleep than it does during the day. Um, how is lack of sleep or sleep issues, how is that related to depression and, and mental health? Like, especially during the, the pandemic. I mean, you mentioned how much more work you've got now. Uh, even people who didn't have mental health problems now do. So yeah, how, mm-hmm. how does sleep play into those things? A lot of times people look at anxiety and depression and sleep and think, oh, well, sleep problems are secondary to anxiety and depression. And at this point, we don't even talk about primary versus secondary insomnia, because we have enough research that shows that if people aren't getting enough sleep, they're more likely to develop anxiety, or they're more likely to have relapses back into depression. And if you think about this part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which basically helps the executive of the brain know what to pay attention to. So if your frontal lobes are your executive, the prefrontal cortex are the administrative assistant sitting outside the executive office saying, okay, pay attention to this, don't pay attention to that. And when we are sleep deprived, the prefrontal cortex actually is less active. And so the secretary is just letting everything through, including the emotions from the more quote unquote primitive part of the brain. I don't like calling it the primitive part of the brain because it's still very necessary, but let's just say the older, more mature part of the brain is letting everything through. And so it's a lot harder for our brains to sort out what's important, what should we react to, what should we not react to, which leads to more experiences of negative emotion and with anxiety, more focusing on things that make us anxious and worried. Yeah, it's it's crazy how important it is and yet how much we all struggle. Um, so what are the different types of insomnia? People say, oh, oh, I have insomnia, but it's not just one mm-hmm. thing, is it? No, it's, well, we divide insomnia into a few different types. There's sleep onset insomnia, which is difficulty falling asleep at the beginning of the night. And then there is sleep maintenance insomnia, which is where people have long awakenings during the night or terminal insomnia, which I tend to lump in with sleep maintenance insomnia, which is where people just wake up before their alarm or before they're supposed to be up and they're awake for a long time and never go back to sleep. And to get back to your question about why it's become worse during the pandemic, this feeds into uh, the question about how to improve our sleep, you know, it's one facet of it, is that people used to have bigger barriers between the stressors of the day, work stressors, school stressors, and then home life. Like I've been listening to your um, your podcast on the anthropology for world building. And in your intro, you talk about St. Cuthbert and how he went to his island and he put his wall up so he didn't have to look at his day job cues. Mm. <laughs> and I was thinking, Cuthbert, dude, I am right there with you <laughs> because as soon as I could get back into my physical office, I did because it's really hard to 
turn off the brain, to turn off the work brain when we are working from home. And here in Atlanta, a lot of people have really long commutes. And so they lost that. So while they might have been able to sleep a little bit more, they were having a harder time drawing that separation between work life and home and sleep life. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll come back to how we can improve sleep. I just want to return to the different types of insomnia because mm-hmm. I used to be someone, I mean, in my family, there was always this story, my granddad, my mum's dad could fall asleep anywhere. And my mum would Mm -hmm. tell the story of he would go out to hang out the washing and he'd sort of hang himself over the washing line and he'd fall asleep there. Oh (laughs) no. Yeah, the family story is we can fall asleep anywhere. And I absolutely (laughs) was that person really until a couple of years ago. And obviously I am in that certain bracket of age where Mm -hmm. hormonal um, changes start to impact my sleep. So I do often Mm -hmm. wake up at three or four a.m. and I don't go back to sleep. And I've always been a morning person, but anything with a three in it can be a a little bit (laughs) annoying. (laughs) But then it's funny because I've started to tell the difference between that kind of waking up Mm -hmm. and then when I wake up because of stress or anxiety or reasons where my mind my it's either my mind or it's my hormones you know so I kind of have different reactions to that kind of sleeplessness so do do, is that a common thing for people to have these different reasons at different times of their life yes I mean as you mentioned especially for us women and I am right there with you in that bracket Mm. And nobody ever talks about perimenopause. They always talk about menopause. So you think you're safe till you're 50, but you're really not. (laughs) No, you're 10 years. Ah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's one of the things that people think that they should be able to just go to sleep and sleep straight for seven to eight hours and never wake up. And the thing is that it is normal for adults to have awakenings during the night. The hope is that if you do have an awakening, okay, maybe you get up, you go pee, or you roll over, or you think for a couple of seconds, and then, or a few minutes, and then you fall back asleep. That's normal. If you are waking up for more than a half hour total during the night, that is considered insomnia. And as for the different reasons, sure, we can get into them a little bit during insomnia treatment, but we basically do very similar things, regardless of why people are waking up. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, I do like a drink. I've been quite open about that on the podcast, but I have (laughs) noticed that I used to really like a Pinot Noir and um, I've almost completely stopped drinking red wine now because I I can feel the impact on my sleep, whereas I'm quite fine with Prosecco or Rosé. So... (laughs) Oh my gosh, me too. Yes, I have really cut back on my red wine drinking. And you see my last name. This is my last name. This is not my husband's last name. I feel like I should be able to drink those good Italian reds. But yes, more than two glasses or sometimes even more than one glass. And yeah, it comes back to get me later. Yeah. So it's almost being much more self-aware around the things that make a difference. I tried valerian tea for a while. That did make a difference for a bit and then it kind of stopped working. So I gave up on that. But I think there's a difference, like I said, about the acceptance. It's like, okay, this is just part of life. And again, we're lucky. Well, I'm lucky in that I I don't have any kind of day job so I can work. I I often will just start work at 4am and then... Yeah, well, then I just stop, stop, uh, you know, by 4pm, I'm like, okay, pretty much it's all over Red Rover. But so this, I guess, this fear of not having enough sleep, how do we get over that fear and maybe accept where we are at or or 
just to because I feel like the anxiety about not sleeping can often just build up and build up and then make it harder to sleep (laughs) definitely and that is honestly a lot of what we treat in my practice is anxiety over not sleeping and that's really come to the forefront in the past year not just with the pandemic where everybody's just more anxious and the anxiety is attaching to whatever it can but also for the people who have had COVID and who have had these really rough weeks of sleep and it's being perpetuated by the fact that yes, that was such a rough week. It was a traumatic experience and they're afraid that it's going to, it's going to happen again. So yeah, there is this big sleep myth that we must get eight hours. You know, we see that number everywhere, eight hours of sleep, whereas that's an average. The national Institute for health here recommends that adults get between seven and nine hours with the very often not mentioned caveat that some people can sleep safely on average for an hour outside of those tails. So it's a bell curve. So adult sleep range may be even as wide as six to 10 hours. And another thing to consider is that we need different amounts of sleep on different nights. You know, you might have a range of sleep that your body likes. Like I know my body likes between seven and a half and nine hours of sleep a night. And if you think about it, that's a pretty big range. But on nights when maybe I've been more active, you know, I have to admit I have not walked 10 hours a day for four days straight ever, but you probably slept great on those nights. Oh, I don't know. No, I didn't actually. You I didn't? didn't? No, I, I would, again, I fall asleep very easily and I would fall asleep. And for people listening, that was the the pilgrimage I did recently. Um, and it, I fell asleep very quickly, but then again, I would wake up at sort of 3 a.m. So I find that almost wow. the physical tired, <laughs> physical tired, <laughs> being tired doesn't actually necessarily <laughs> help with that it, waking up insomnia. Although I don't like the phrase terminal insomnia. That's how pretty serious <laughs> I know that sounds like something that might come up in one of your books <laughs> exactly yeah I'm, maybe that's given me an idea but no it's, oh, it's, it's so interesting and um, any of the other comments oh and we should say that seven hours to nine hours or whatever that also includes these normal periods of waking for short amounts of time like does anyone mm-hmm. really sleep without waking up after a certain age I guess <laughs> It's very rare for adults. I have had patients who have said that they've gotten there or that, you know, before their insomnia developed a couple of years ago, that's what they were doing. But I suspect they were waking up briefly and not remembering. But yeah, generally, uh, when somebody is sleeping seven, eight, nine hours straight, that's when they are in their you know, childhood teens, maybe early 20s or late 20s. But yeah, generally, once we get past 30, we are going to have small awakenings. Yeah, exactly. So any other common sleep myths? Okay, so the one that really irritates me is when should you go to bed every night at the same time? That is not the case because a lot of times if people are going to bed before they are truly sleepy, they're going to lie awake in bed, which then teaches your body and your brain that bed is for being awake, not for being asleep. And so I have a lot of people who perhaps their problems started because they heard that eight hour number. They said, okay, I'm getting up at six o'clock in the morning for work. That means I need to be in bed by 10, even though my body isn't getting tired until 11 or 12. Mm. And so they ended up getting themselves into trouble with that. 
Yeah. And some people really are night owls, aren't they? Like their mm-hmm. body wants to be awake in the in the dark. And that's it seems such an unacceptable way to live in the modern world. And yet it feels like there are a proportion of people who who are that way. Yes, that's another one of those things that really irritates me is that the idea that the ideal sleep schedule is from 10 o'clock to six o'clock. And there is there's even information out there that, oh, well, you're only going to get really good sleep in those hours before midnight. And that's really not the case. Yes, we all have different circadian rhythms. And it's one of my big soapboxes in sleep that we should be able to live and work according to our natural rhythms rather than being shoehorned into whatever this ideal is. Honestly, that's one of the reasons why I am self-employed is so that I can set my own hours because I'm a little phase delayed. I don't think I've ever gotten up regularly at six o'clock since I was in high school in the nineties and had to get up early because I had to have that, you know, perfect nineties hairstyle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that fell off quickly. I love that. No, you, you said you used the uh, phase delayed. I think that's mm-hmm. brilliant because you're right. It's not necessarily a night owl, like someone who wants to be awake when it's dark. It's that just even a couple of hours difference to even like your, you know, your potential, your partner, your kids. I mean, th- mm-hmm. there are going to be difficult things in a relationships setting when that happens. I also find a lot of writers fit into this because mm-hmm. they can't necessarily work a no- normal job hours and have found writing actually is is a career you can do when you're Mm -hmm. phase delayed. Exactly. It's perfect for us. And there's another one of those sleep myths versus writing myths is that the best writing time is first thing in the morning. Whereas for me, my brain just does not work like that. So it works better for me to write after dinner. And I talk about this in the book, uh, Better Sleep for the Overachiever, that I struggled for so long trying to fit into that ideal mold of I must get up early. I must write for an hour before I go to work. I must do this, this, and this in order to be successful. And finally, I threw all those rules out the window and thought, you know what? Let me just write when it works for me. And that is when I'm getting most of my NaNoWriMo words done this month is after dinner and it pushes my bedtime a little bit later and that's okay. Yeah, that's great you say that because I well I'm one of those people who does write in the morning and <laughs> sometimes really early. Uh, but no, I think this is so important. I mean, I know um, Dean Wesley Smith, who's been on the show, and he's a kind of virtual mentor for me. And and he, I think, starts about eleven p.m. Mm. And so his writing phase is is definitely over the over the night and it's so mm. interesting to hear that so I hope that's helped some people listening uh that it doesn't matter when it is uh we're all different but um let's talk about how can we improve our sleep then let's talk about the how do we uh improve the falling asleep bit the early bit our sleep rituals I guess yes well if you think about it we are behavioral creatures even though we have evolved we are still very behavioral creatures and our bodies and our minds like our routines. Admittedly, some people intellectually like routines a little bit better than others, but generally we can train ourselves. And so one big way to improve falling asleep is to give yourself adequate time and space to wind down. So think about those computers back in the 90s. Remember, they took such a long time to shut down all of their various processes that we chose a song to play while they did that. Our brains are kind of like that. So giving ourselves at least an hour of no screens, because screens 
have that blue light that is activating to our brain. And also a lot of the content on screens, even though we might tell ourselves is relaxing, it can be activating. <laughs> Especially in the pandemic, like the doom scrolling. Oh, just check it. Check it one oh, more time. Gosh, yes. <laughs> I would have to say yeah, that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I've been giving since, oh, about, say, 2016 in this country, which is to really <laughs> limit your news exposure. Oh, yeah. I mean, we used to like I used to wake up in the morning and go, oh, what's he done now? <laughs> Oh gosh! Yeah, <laughs> check, check the news. I mean, it really. Yeah, so exactly, and that is a, a borders on addiction, and I completely right. get it in my own behaviour. But I do read on. Um, I read on a Kindle Paperwhite, which has an e-ink mm-hmm. screen, and I dial down the brightness all the way. And because it's only right. black and white, well, it's not white. It's kind of dark grey by the time that happens. It, so, is that okay? Yes, as long as you have dialed it back so that there is no glow at all that's great like I got the Kindle Oasis for that reason because that is the one where you can dial it completely dark and you do need a light to read it so you can see if perhaps the paper white is still giving you enough light that it could disturb your sleep I know you say you have no trouble falling asleep but Mm. it's interesting after having looked at tens of thousands of sleep diaries at this point uh, late night light exposure can definitely impact sleep later on yeah, well, it's okay. So I also wear, I wear an eye mask, like quite a thick mm-hmm. eye mask. And I, I also wear earplugs. My husband does maybe snore. <laughs> and so I pretty much, I cut out all light in that way as well and mm-hmm. sound. So I go into my little <laughs> sensory you, deprivation you're a mummy. <laughs> Yeah, my husband maybe snores too. I yes. understand. Does that help? Is that something you recommend for people, the eye mask, earplugs combination? Only if they are really sensitive to light and noise. Mm. I think otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. Otherwise, we try to make sleep as simple as possible. And so we try to not have, you know, too much extraneous things that need to happen in order for somebody to sleep, which is also another reason why we recommend that people not use sleep medication. And we spend a lot of time getting people off sleep medication. And that includes the -the over-the-counter things like diphenhydramine. And as we were talking about before melatonin, we can get that very easily here. (laughs) Yeah, I know you guys can't, Hmm. but when you're taking something, you're giving yourself the signal that, Hey, I can't sleep on my own. Yes. I I mean, I must say when I come to the U S it does shock me. I mean, I know lots of people who take something to go to sleep and then take Mm -hmm. something in the morning to get them going or that kind of thing and that medication it must be very easy to kind of get hooked on that I have thought about going at times going to a doctor and getting something but what I found is that getting rid of the anxiety around sleep has actually just helped a lot Mm -hmm. oh definitely Yeah, around myself. And that's learning like your book, you know, is full of all the things so that you understand what's natural as opposed to what some sort of pop news tells you is normal. Right. And there is, yeah, the pop news will just take the very simplest thing without the context and try to put that out there as a hard and fast rule. And with a few exceptions, there really aren't any hard and fast rules that are going to work the same way for every single person. Mm. What about eating or, and or drinking? There's one that says don't eat or drink X number of hours before bed. And then another one that says have some hot milk with honey or mm-hmm. whatever. That That's a great question because that's another one of those things that's super individual. So basically you want to find this balance where you're not going to bed hungry, 
but you're also not going to bed stuffed. So you want to be, shall we say, comfortably satisfied when you go to bed. And for some reason, having hot milk helps with that. Maybe it's the, there's probably not enough tryptophan in there to make a real big difference, but it has some carbs and it has some protein, which keeps you from uh, having those blood sugar spikes. So there's probably something to that, but again, for certain people, it works. And for other people, it doesn't. So for example, if somebody has reflux issues, they probably don't want to be drinking a glass of warm milk before bed because that's going to then disturb them. Yeah. Interesting. Any other things on improving sleep then? So since you talked about, or since you asked about food, exercise is another one of those things that there's a lot of conflicting information about. Like we hear you should not exercise close to bedtime. And that's another one of those really individual variables. Whereas some people, especially if they are a bit more anxious, tend to benefit from exercise closer to bedtime because it's helping to burn off some of that cortisol that's built up during the day from their anxiety. So for some people that works. Otherwise, you know, think about how exercise affects you. Some people exercise wakes them up. They're the ones who are at the gym at, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning and they're great for the rest of the day. I wish I was one of those people. I'm one of those people (laughs) where exercise wears me out. And so if I exercise first thing in the morning, like I did today, I am probably going to be a little tired for the rest of the day, but you know what? At least I got it over with. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And again, I'm someone, I, I always exercise in the morning pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after lunchtime, I'm, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's good to know that there, there just are no rules. I mean, there's different categories and it's like each part of us fits into a different category. So we're all mm-hmm. individuals, which is a relief, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Like one of the, so I would say the only hard and fast rules for sleep, if you want to know where to start with the basics are try to wake up at around the same time every day because we have these circadian rhythms, these internal clocks that tell us when to be awake, when to be asleep, when to be hungry. And if you want your body to know when it's supposed to be asleep, it needs to know when it's supposed to wake up. And so that's why they say get up at the same time every single day. It's just not just to torture you on weekends, like a lot of people think. (laughs) And then on the other end, don't go to bed until you're sleepy. And then yes, cut out screens an hour before bedtime and have a routine. I would say those are the basics. Of course, there are tons of other interfering things that happen that keep people from sleeping, which I talk about more of those in the book. But I want to say, yeah, if you want just the core rules, those would be them. Yeah, again, simple, but it's not easy. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I admit such I have... Is life. <laughs> yes, I'm very thankful that I sleep well because I will admit the getting up at the same time, I try to give myself an hour range and no more, although sometimes that can be difficult, especially after I've gone through a period where I'm now an introvert exhaustion. Like I mentioned, I was at a convention last weekend and we're recording this in early November, which means that we just had daylight savings time go off. And oh my gosh, that extra hour of sleep on Sunday morning of convention was the best thing ever. (laughs) Oh, it's just funny, isn't it? So you do have a section on mindfulness and meditation, but you do Mm -hmm. also acknowledge it's not for everyone because this is something that people say. And my husband um, goes through phases when he will meditate every day and he finds it very useful, but it's not something Mm -hmm. I've found useful. So tell us a bit about mindfulness if people want to try it or some of the alternatives. 
So I think you bring up a great question because there is a little bit of a distinction in that mindfulness is more of a way of approaching reality, whereas meditation is a type of mindfulness activity. And so there are a lot of other different mindfulness activities that people can do if meditation just really isn't their thing. And you know, that's fine. Sometimes it's not. I have had so many people tell me that they have failed at meditation, where just to make a, a little distinction, a lot of times people think that the purpose of meditation is to clear your mind. Our minds don't do that. Their job is to think. They're really good at it. The point is to get practiced at noticing when the mind is wandering and then bringing it back and noticing when it's wandering and bringing it back. And by doing that over and over and over again during the practices, you then learn to better do that outside of the practices in times when it's more important. So for example, if you wake up and your mind starts wandering in a not so useful direction, you're able to catch it more quickly before it gets as far as making you be up for hours. So I do like to try to draw that distinction because there is so much misconception about mindfulness. I'll admit I'm a regular meditator. I have found it to be very useful, but there are other aspects of mindfulness that I've found to be just as useful outside of that. So for example, non-judgmental observation is a core mindfulness principle. And you've already talked about applying it perhaps without realizing it in that when you wake up, you don't get upset about being awake, you accept it. Mm. You approach that non-judgmentally. Yeah, that's made a big difference actually. And and in fact, talking about our hormonal phase of life, I'm taking Mm -hmm. that attitude now a lot more about a lot of things and also having had COVID and all the things that right. happened this year I'm like you know or maybe that it's just an attitude towards life in general <laughs> right exactly but uh, yeah I was thinking about this question and a lot of times people want to use mindfulness for stress reduction which it's very useful but if that's not really your philosophy or your thing There are a couple of questions to ask that might be good alternatives that are still tangentially related. So, for example, when you find yourself getting upset over something, one thing to ask that comes maybe more out of the cognitive therapy world is where am I blowing up the drama? Because as humans, we're wired for drama and our minds will automatically do that without us realizing it. You know, that's why we like stories, right? Because they're Mm -hmm. full of drama. We tell ourselves stories that might be more full of drama than they need to be. Maybe we're filling in what other people are thinking without checking with them or without really knowing how often do we do that. And another way to approach it is, okay, is this thought useful or not useful? And it relates back to your interview with Becca Syme with the question, the premise, you know, is this a useful premise for me to be? operating from? Or is this a useful thought for me to be engaging with and chewing on right now? Yeah, right now is the point, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, I've woken up and I'm thinking about this, 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 and this. And maybe I could leave that till later (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than focusing on it now. I also, I do find breathing exercises useful because I'm Mm -hmm. someone, I do hold my breath when I think, when I, when I do a lot of things, I hold my breath and I know I'm like, it's what I'm on my list, learn breath work. (laughs) (laughs) But I have learned some basic breathing, like belly breathing and things like four point breathing or whatever it's called and counting breaths. And I have found that to be quite useful in, in some ways. Yes, that's 
one thing I definitely do with all of my patients is we all start off with diaphragmatic breathing, or as you call it, belly breathing, not only because it helps to calm the mind, but because breathing like that, breathing from your belly and keeping the chest still helps to turn on the parasympathetic or calming part of the autonomic nervous system, which then helps us to come out of fight or flight more quickly. Fantastic. Okay. So I also, the book has a lot about mindset and you talk Mm -hmm. about your author experiences in the (laughs) examples, which I think is brilliant. It's very revealing and I appreciate what you share in the book, but uh, maybe you could share just a couple of things. Like what have you learned from your indie author journey that informs your work as a psychologist? Oh, that is a great question because typically people want to know how being a psychologist has helped me be a better writer. So that is a very creative way to ask the question. (laughs) I would say first, just being a writer has helped me to be a better psychotherapist because I'm a lot more creative. I believe as a result, I'm able to look at things in perhaps different ways than what we were taught. And I'm I'm able to explain things in different ways if people don't quite get the traditional wording and the traditional language. So that has definitely helped. My indie author journey has had plenty of ups and downs. Mm, Yeah. And so it's helped me be a better psychologist because it's helped me to accept more that there are going to be ups and downs, that there are going to be successes and failures. And I think it's helped me to be a little, maybe not a lot, but a little bit more tolerant of uncertainty in my business. And also know, okay, well, this thing didn't work. It doesn't mean I'm a failure. It just means I need to try something else. Yeah. And I can bring that mm-hmm. to my patients as well, which is, okay, you know what? So you tried this thing, didn't work. It's okay. Try something different. Yeah, I think that's really important. And do you enjoy the fact, I guess, that you have this very different day job because sometimes there's this feeling in the community and I I do try and dispel it but I am a full-time I guess creative entrepreneur but having a day job is also a really great thing because it it means the entire pressure isn't on your creative work as such. Yes and I was so relieved to hear I think I can't remember if it was you or Mark who was reading that part in The Relaxed Author which is If you have a day job that you like or that works for you, it is perfectly okay to not want to be a full-time author. And I had already felt that. And I was like, yes, validation. Yeah, I think, and to be honest, it's actually maybe easier and better. (laughs) (laughs) Because it separates what you said at the beginning about a problem between separating the barrier between home and work. And Mm -hmm. this is something I just struggle with so much. And if you can separate your life into these different areas, both of which fulfill you in a different way, Mm -hmm. that just seems magic. (laughs) Yes. And I know you've talked about how hard you found it to write from home Mm -hmm. during the pandemic because you like to write at coffee shops. And I am the same way. I prefer to not write in the space where I see my clients. So That's another thing that I have found that's nice about writing in the evening because I sort of put the day job to bed at six or seven o'clock. We're done. No more day job stuff. No more emails or looking at the calendar or anything like that. At least I try to follow that rule. And then after that, my mental shift is switching my home office to, okay, this is my writing space now. And so I have my headphones and my music and I mean, the cat's always there regardless of which job it is, but Yeah, I have my wine. Obviously, I don't have that while I'm seeing patients. 
Yeah. And do you find that having the different names helps you switch your headspace almost? Yes. Although it's funny since turning 40, like my Cecilia Dominic persona, I would go to conventions. Like I, we have a lot of, we're very fortunate to have a lot of local fantasy and pop culture conventions here in the Atlanta area. The biggest one is of course, Dragon Con, but we have a bunch of smaller ones as well and across the Southeast. So I would go to conventions and I found for a while that Cecilia Dominic was a lot more outgoing, a lot more confident, maybe a lot more just, I'm trying to think, think of the right word, maybe just like genuinely an author persona. And whereas Anna Bartolucci is like more of a subdued therapist persona, but since I've turned 40, the two have pretty much merged. Oh, that's that's interesting. So is that just you're more, are you more comfortable almost sharing your professional side now? Like you're on this show with both mm-hmm. names kind of, but I am interviewing Anna, not Cecilia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you're able to sort of reconcile them both. Yes, now I'm much better able to reconcile the two of them. And I call the Cecilia Dominic persona the, the not so secret alter ego mm. because... If it's appropriate, of course, I will share that with my patients. And here in my office where I see patients physically, although still only about you know a third of them coming in in person, I have my ego shelf on the top of my bookshelf with all my books. So, that's you know, great. they're there if they see them. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, and of course, no judgment for anyone who doesn't want to share their alter egos and their writer names. But I do think as some, obviously I do this myself and I find it useful. But uh, last question before we uh, wind up, we're almost out of time. But so now you're obviously you're marketing nonfiction books and Mm -hmm. also your steampunk and urban fantasy under Cecilia. So what differences Mm -hmm. have you found between the writing and the book marketing processes? So I don't know if this is the case for you, but for me, writing nonfiction is a lot harder. Oh, it's the opposite for me. <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd, I'd remember you saying that. Well, you know, with nonfiction, when you get stuck, you can't just kill somebody off. The police <laughs> don't like that. <laughs> so I think, yeah, I found nonfiction to be a lot harder. And a lot of the things I talk about in the books, like in the book, like perfectionism and procrastination and imposter syndrome, I experienced while I was writing that book because I was trying to be as genuine as possible and as honest and upfront about my struggles as possible. And I had to recognize and resist that little voice that kept saying, oh, nobody really cares what you have to say. So when I'm writing as Cecilia, of course, it's fictional worlds, fictional characters, and I feel like maybe they're a little bit more separated from me. Mm. So I would say that would be the difference in the writing. And then as for marketing, I'm, I've definitely learned a lot about marketing from being an indie author, which has helped me with my nonfiction, and even my practice. Like I would never have thought to run Facebook ads, for example, for my practice had I you know, not done it first as, a, as an indie author. And I still do mostly the paid ads for the fiction, you know, paid ads. I have a newsletter that I've had for a while, you know, talking to other authors, doing newsletter swaps and things like that. Whereas for nonfiction, it's definitely been more of a strategy of let me get this book into the hands of people who can recommend it. So for example, I sent copies to a bunch of my referral sources 
And that was one reason that I put it out in 2019 or in 2020, which was because I knew they needed resources for their patients. And so I was so busy at the practice, like, okay, I can't do a lot of publicity for this right now, but let me just get it out there so the people who need it can have it as a resource. And I'm also doing podcast interviews like this one. And I did one for the self-employed life a few weeks ago that just recently dropped. And I and that I've not been consistent about pitching other podcasts, but I'm going to get back to it. So yes, getting the nonfiction into the hands of experts and people who can recommend it is mm-hmm. that strategy. Whereas the fiction, it's more of a, I guess, a wide, wider strategy of getting it directly to consumers. Yeah, I think that's that is interesting. And of course, the book is Better Sleep for the Overachiever. Although if you don't feel like an overachiever, it's still useful. <laughs> 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 I can see why Thank you, you. Call, yeah I'm sure you called it that but it's also if you feel like you're an underachiever it's also useful <laughs> brilliant so where can people you. find you and your books online oh you can find my Cecilia Dominic self at my website ceciliadominic.com and that is c-e-c-i-l-i-a dominic.com since there are two ways to spell Cecilia mine is one with an i If you are interested in Better Sleep for the Overachiever with the blog that I update occasionally, that one is at overachieverbook.com. I was really excited when I got that website domain. And then if you are interested in me or my practice, if you're here in the States, of course, we can do telehealth with anybody in Georgia. And we're also SIPACT providers, which means that we serve several other states as well. So you can find us, and I say us, not as the royal we, but since there are three of us at sleepyinvatl.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Anna. That was great. Thank you, Joanna. I really enjoyed it. So I hope you found the interview with Anne useful and definitely get her book and put some of the tips into action. Sleep is so important to us all for life and for creativity and health and all those things. It really is. I, I feel like it's possibly the number one thing. <laughs> so next week, I'm talking to William Kanoa about a writer's guide to the end of self-doubt. So expect mindset and writing life tips as we get back into the swing of the year. And I will be back in the UK, COVID tests willing. <laughs> so see you in the northern winter. Happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.